Well, before we get to our passage in 1 Samuel today, uh, let's look together on the screen at 1 Timothy 4.8. It says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. It's a familiar verse uh, to, to many of us. And what's going on here is, is Paul's using this technique, a uh, common technique in, in argument in, in the New Testament, an argument from the lesser to the greater. It's kind of like if this lesser thing is true, how much more this greater thing is true? If, if physical fitness for ourselves is important, how much more spiritual fitness is important? Training for godliness. This is what Paul's getting at in 1 Timothy 4.8. Well, as we come to God's Word today, I want to use a, a simul, similar argument of, of lesser, of greater, about what we're after when we listen to a sermon, or what we're after as Christ followers as we open God's Word ourselves and look at it, and read it, and study it. Now, think about that for a moment. What, what are you after? Uh, if you opened God's Word this morning, and I, and I hope you did, what, what, what were you after in that time? And there's a lot of answers to that question, but I, I want to focus on two of them and, and kind of give a lesser and greater argument to them. Now, obviously, one of the things that we, we uh, get when we open God's Word is, is knowledge. We learn. I want to suggest that's, that's the lesser thing that we're after. What we're really after, every time we read God's Word, every time we listen to a sermon, is His grace, His grace touching us and changing us and making us more like Him. Grace is emphasized so much in the Scriptures and how desperately we need it. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And what I'm talking about today and what he's talking about there is a sanctifying grace, the empowering of the Holy Spirit to change you and me and make us more and more into the, the image of Christ. We see this not only at the end of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 16, but we see it at the beginning of his letters, very customary beginning to most of his letters, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel Chapter 10, what we're after today is God's grace. And I see three different ways that we need his grace out of this passage. So let's uh, take a look at it. Let's begin looking at verse 17 that Curtis just read for us. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 17. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. So we see Samuel, the judge, speaking as a prophet here as well, delivering the word of the Lord. And what is the word? Here it is. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. This is what I've done. This is what God has done. He saved you. He's rescued you. Verse 19. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses, and you have said, no, set a king over us. So we see the contrast here between this demand for a king and their lack of faith or trust or confidence in the Lord. They 
uh, could go together. It's not bad to want a king, to desire a king, or to have a king, but they have desired the king in such a way that is not good. And we know that from verse 19. You have now rejected your God who saves you. So they are looking to the king, the future king, in a way that is unhealthy and in a way that is not good for their souls. One commentator writes this. He says, The Israelites continued to insist in no uncertain terms that they wanted a king, a demand not outside God's will, but one sinfully motivated. There's nothing morally wrong with monarchy. There's nothing morally wrong with desiring a king. So what we're seeing in this text is we're getting a peek into the hearts of the Israelites. And they're desiring a king in an excessive way that displaces the saving power, the sustaining power of God and his lordship. So the problem isn't with monarchy. The problem isn't with having a king. This was God's will. But in their hearts, there are sinful motives going on. Now, when we read the Bible in the flesh, we often think, well, I'm not really like that. And we distance ourselves from the problem that's going on in the text. But the reality is, we are actually a lot like the Israelites. And we attach ourselves to good things in excessive ways that displaces God as our Lord, as our Savior. Look back at your Bibles or your devices or your sheets there for just a moment and and bounce your eyes down to verse 27. There's a group of Israelites labeled the troublemakers in verse 27, but some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? So I'm jumping to the end of the text here where Saul has, has publicly been inaugurated as king, and they're looking at him and saying, how can he save us? You see, they're looking to the king in an unhealthy way. As their, as their functional Savior, as their functional Lord, we want Him. Tim Keller writes this. He says, um, anything we look to, more than we look to Christ for our sense of acceptability, joy, significance, hope, and security is by definition our God. And so for the Israelites here, their functional God is monarchy. It's this king that they've demanded. And if we know the history, we know what's been going on in recent chapters, uh, Israelites haven't been doing too well. The nations around them have kings. They have stronger militaries. They have stronger power, stronger civilizations. And they want to be like them. And it is an unhealthy, excessive attachment that they want to be like them. Their sense of acceptability is coming not from the covenant-keeping God of Israel, but from this king that we want like our neighbors have. Again, Tim Keller writes this. He says, A sure sign of the presence of idolatry is inordinate anxiety, anger, or discouragement when our idols are thwarted. So if we lose a good thing, it makes us sad. But if we lose an idol, it devastates us. And his comments here gives us some a picture into the hearts of the Israelites who have been devastated as they look at their neighbors who have kings, and we don't have one, and this is what we want. This is their idol. This is what we are to see in today's text at the beginning here, and we need to do the work of connecting our own hearts to this problem and look to Christ with supremacy to replace the various idols that we have. So first, 
point today. We desperately need God's grace. I began this message talking about what we need when we listen to a sermon or open God's word. We need his grace. We need his empowerment to look to Christ with a particular supremacy, that he is such Lord of my life that it puts blank in his shadow. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 10, the blank is monarchy. So puts monarchy in the shadow of the supremacy of the covenant-keeping God of Israel and puts the, the, the king or the monarchy in its place. So what is in the blank in your life, in my life? What have you been excessively attached to that is not so clearly in the shadow of the supremacy of the lordship of Jesus in your life? You know, it's interesting how when you preach on something, uh, God gives you opportunity during the week, even though you might, lock, not, might not like it, to discover your own idols, your own struggles, your own temptations. And I'm going to share uh, one of those with you from this week. We, my wife and I both had a day off together, and we uh, headed up to the West Shore area of the Tahoe Basin, and we went for a, a, a day hike. Just we're up there for the day. We went to Lake Genevieve, probably... Nobody's been to Lake Anybody been here? You've been to Lake Genevieve. All right, so a couple of us have been there. It's a backcountry lake. We hiked up there. You can see my beautiful wife's head there. She's the one behind the two dogs, right? So um, two dogs in the front. We had beautiful uh, time up there and just a great day. But before we started our hike, uh, we, we flip open the trunk and are getting the gear and the day pack and all of this. And a water bottle had leaked as we drove up there. None of you have ever had this experience. Um, and I had a change of fresh clothes, because when I come back from a day hike, I don't smell so good, and I want to put some fresh clothes on. And the water bottle had just leaked all over my fresh clothes and everything else in the back of the car. And so, guess how I responded? Not, not so maturely. Not so, um, the, the supremacy of Christ was not reigning in my heart, in my mind. And I lost control, and I kind of laid into my wife. By the way, it was her water bottle that leaked into uh, stuff. And I, I just kind of lost it. And there's kind of a history. <laughs> so this is like confession time part number two now. There's kind of a history of me losing it with water bottles, not related to my wife, but related to some teenage boys that drove my truck for quite a few years. And, you know, leaking water bottles in the truck in the summer are not that big of a deal. In the winter, it's a little bit different. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been into a basement in Pennsylvania that is wet year-round. Anybody know the smell I'm talking about? This nasty smell. Well, we had this smell for quite a few years when my boys were at home from leaking water bottles in my truck in the wintertime into the carpet and into the seat. So I've kind of got a phobia. So now you know how to pray for me this week uh, for, for leaking water bottles. But in all seriousness, at this moment, um, I, I'm not yielded to the Spirit. And I'm laying into my wife, and, and, I, and I need to look to Christ with supremacy. This is, this is not a, a big deal. Um, but it is a big deal because I, I actually wrote it out, so it, it, it helps. So what, what was going on? What was I excessively attached to that, that I responded this way? So here's how, how I wrote it out. My idiosyncratic wisdom, 
about water bottles, that they're secure and vertically upright in the vehicle. That's my idiosyncratic wisdom, which is a good wisdom. It's good, just like wanting a king. But I've become excessively attached to this over time, and it must be followed. And if it's not followed, I, I, I freak out. I, I'm, I'm not happy, and so my idol gets revealed. So this text is speaking to us about how all of us, how we are actually similar to the Israelites who are excessively attached to something very different than um, a, a car that doesn't smell like a Pennsylvania basement. They're attached to this idea of monarchy and power and civilization like our neighbors, and, and they are not looking to God as supreme in their life. So when this happens, what, what, what we need to do is ask for forgiveness. And so I did that with my wife. At the beginning of the hike, we weren't so close to each other when we started uh, hiking up to that lake. But she forgave me, and, and uh, we had a, a, a great time up there. So, number one, look to Christ with a particular supremacy that puts whatever you are excessively attached to, that's an idol, in the place of Christ, putting in its place his shadow his grace, his mercy is, is over that. That's the first thing I want us to see from verses 17 through 19. Let's come back to the text here. At, uh, we're in the middle of verse 19, 1 Samuel 10. So now, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Verse 20, when Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen, but when they looked for him, he was not to be found. Let me just pause here for a moment and let you know what's going on, because if you've been following the last few weeks, you might be thinking, well, isn't he already anointed as king? And he was. If you look back at chapter 10 and verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, and he anointed him king. This was the private anointing, if you will. So what we have here going on in the latter part of chapter 10 is the inauguration, the public announcement of Saul as king. And this is done by lots. This is done showing that God is sovereign over the choice of Saul as king. So when it says he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, they, they did a thing like rolling dice or casting lots, and the lot fell and showed that it was Benjamin. And then... Which tribe of, or which clan of Benjamin, Matri's clan, was chosen? And then which one, which individual from Matri's clan is going to be king? And the lot was chosen, or the dice were rolled, and Saul is chosen. So the Israelites can see that God was behind this. This wasn't Samuel concocting something. This wasn't some backroom deal. But God actually chose Saul to be king. They have an incredibly high view of God's sovereignty and we should as well. Uh, Matthew Henry writes this. He says, By this method, it would appear to the people, as it already appeared to Samuel, that Saul was appointed of God to be king. I don't know if you have a high view of sovereignty, but this passage is a view that opens our eyes to the high view of God's sovereignty as they are literally like casting dice or uh, casting lots to determine who's going to be the king, and it matched exactly what God had already uh, done, and, and that is uh, Samuel, choosing Samuel. So Proverbs 16.33 tells us about this truth. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is absolutely sovereign. There's lots of difficult implications of that we don't have time to get into today, but it is clear that he's sovereign, 
and he's sovereignly chosen Saul as king. Let's come back to our text. We're at uh, verse 22. He's been chosen. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So he's been anointed king. He knows he's going to be king. The inauguration ceremony, if you will, is going on, and he's hiding among the baggage. Does this seem like an eager, ready-to-serve, anointed leader here? Say no. I mean, he's hiding among the baggage. So what is God trying to communicate to us here? As we read these Old Testament passages, we need to be asking and answering the question, what does this have to do with my life? So the first thing we saw was this issue of idolatry, which our, our hearts are idol factories. And so this is incredibly relevant to your life, the latter part of 1 Samuel 10. What we see here in verses 20 to 22 or thereabouts is, a, is someone whom God has called to something, who is reluctant to step in to that calling. This, again, is something that is relevant to us and to our lives. We desperately need his grace, even more than we need knowledge or information. We need his grace to help us to step out courageously when God calls us to something. So I'm hoping right now some of you are thinking about what God has called you to. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was recently. Maybe it was this week. Maybe it's a burden he put on your heart. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a people group. Maybe it's something you need to do that you haven't done. Something he's called you to. And you need his grace to step out courageously and not be hiding among the baggage when he has clearly called you to do whatever it is that he's called you to do. I'm praying over this sermon this week and thinking about a recent time where I saw someone who courageously stepped out to something God called him to. And I thought of um, what I'll call, in my very limited memory scope, uh, the greatest announcement I've ever heard. You know, on Sunday mornings, part of, uh, no matter what sort of church you're in, there's probably some level of announcements that take place, whether you're in a, a very informal and lively church or a very formal church, whatever the style is, you probably have some announcements. And uh, In June, we were back in New York um, visiting our son and helping him get set up in his apartment there. And the five of us in our family, we were at... Uh, Redeemer Church there. And this guy gets up to do an announcement. And man, God used this man. Like I was thinking as I was getting ready to share this with you today, this announcement probably impacted me more, this five-minute announcement than the 30-minute sermon. The sermon was excellent and it impacted me. This man gets up there and he tells you this story and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase and tell I'm not going to be able to do justice because I'm not him and I wasn't called and and he shares his story. It was a very routine Sunday morning, if you will. Some months prior, maybe it was a year prior, I don't remember, to this day where he's making the announcement. And they had had baptisms that particular Sunday. We do baptisms behind us here. If you haven't seen any yet, uh, be, let's be praying together that we'll be doing some soon. But they were doing baptisms. And at the end of baptisms, in this particular church culture, the congregation would stand and they would recite a vow that they would have on the screen for young people that were baptized, that we're going to partner and we're going to commit to helping bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so they recited this vow. 
It happens all the time. It's always on the screen when they do this in this particular church culture. But in this particular instance, God just reached out and grabbed the heart of this guy. And, and it took him some time to follow up. What the Lord impressed upon him is you need to serve with these kids. The specific ones that were baptized on that Sunday. Young kids. And he didn't really follow up on that for some time. And then finally he followed up and he, he realized that God wanted him to be involved in working in children's ministry or their nursery. I don't remember exactly where he was working. So he talked about filling all the forms and all the things he had to do. But the guy just, he, he actually started weeping about how God had changed him as he was serving children in his church after responding to this moment where God called him. He, he, he came out away from the baggage, and he started to serve the Lord courageously when he had called him sometime previously, and he stood out, and, and God blessed him, and it was just really, really... Did, did I do okay, hon, sharing? Wasn't that... You see my wife, if you need a better description... Of, of how this, it was just impactful. The guy started crying. It was like the best announcement I've ever heard because the Lord was in it, not because it was so cute or prepared, but because God touched him with his grace and he stepped out courageously when God called him. It took him some time. So this is the second thing that we see. We need God's grace when we open his word, when we hear a sermon preached. Let's come back to our text here and we'll finish up looking at verses 23 through 27. So this is the public inauguration of Saul. He's been anointed, but he's lost among the baggage. So how does this turn out? Look at verse 23. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. There's a phrase that's been around for thousands of years in, in civilizations that have kings. Long live the king. It's, it's a great phrase. There it is in the Old Testament. Verse 25, Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll, and he deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. There's the word grace isn't there, but there's a work of God's Spirit. Some of the people saw what God was doing, and they're described as valiant men, and they go back with him with hearts that God has touched. Verse 27, but some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? So they're representing these Israelites who are excessively attached to monarchy. They're looking to monarchy to save them, and they know that Saul is not going to be like these other kings, and they're actually right. But they're wrong in the sense that they're excessively attached to monarchy. How can this fellow save us? They need to be looking to the covenant-keeping God of Israel to save them, not to their monarch. They despised him, Saul, and they brought him no gifts, which was just part of ancient Near Eastern culture. When a king is anointed, whether it was Israelite or Philistine or Canaanite or whoever, they, they were brought gifts. This is just standard procedure, like shaking hands, like saying, come on in, can I get you a drink of water or whatever on a hot summer day? So they didn't do what was expected, and they despised him. And look at Saul's response, the last few words of today's text. But Saul kept silent. Now Saul's a complicated figure, and his life continues to move in a tragic direction, but here we see Saul at his best. Saul's critics despise him. They don't honor him as they should, 
Instead of laying into them, instead of criticizing them, instead of starting off his monarchy with a battle, he keeps silent. This is the third area where God wants to connect in our lives today. And we desperately need grace, you and I, when we experience criticism, when we experience those who are opposed to us for a variety of reasons, very often we need to respond the way that Saul responded here. Saul kept silent. The third area that you and I need grace is to endure criticism with humility. And this often means being silent and not responding to our critics, not attacking them, not laying into them. Final thing that I want to mention today that we do when we are reading or preaching the Old Testament is we want to connect it to the New Testament and themes in the New Testament. So we see this theme here, a positive theme of of Saul being silent before his enemies. Where do we see this in the New Testament? Many of you probably know where I'm going to Mark chapter 14. As Jesus is being uh, about to be crucified, he's before the Sanhedrin. Look at this passage with me on the screen, Mark 14. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus pointed out all their faults and made posters and protested so that they would know how they were wrong. He especially posted on his Instagram and Facebook pages of their weaknesses and their faults. Is that what he did? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. There is a time when we are criticized, when we are attacked, to actually be silent. We see this in the one who had no sin, who remains silent, not attacking his enemies. Now, he does actually speak in a moment. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. He revealed his identity. This is who I am. But he withheld the temptation of laying into his enemies, pointing out their faults, which would have done no redemptive thing good at this point. For a whole variety of reasons, Jesus' mission was to actually die for the sins of the world. It had been prophesied in Isaiah that like a a lamb before his shears, that he would be silent, so he's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling the will of God to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So we see a point of connection thematically here with Saul keeping silent before his enemies. And I want this to be a reminder of how you and I often need God's grace when we need to be silent before our enemies. 1 Peter chapter 2 Says it says this, it puts it this way, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And this is what God 
often calls us as his followers to do, to do, to endure criticism with humility, even with silence. I've been very slowly reading a biography of, of Frederick Douglass, um, an abolitionist, a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus, contemporary of Abraham Lincoln. I'm just near the end. Really sad story on, on two ends at the, near the end of this biography, near the end of his life. Uh, family problems. Anybody out there have some extended family problems and divisions? Well, Frederick Douglass had them as well as a very famous man. And his son-in-law, near the end of his life, sues him for not paying his wife, Frederick Douglass's daughter, for back work. And he does this very publicly with letters to the editor, hanging family dirt in the newspapers with this lawsuit. Believer, suing believer, how does Frederick Douglass respond? I would like to tell you that he was exemplary and he was silent before his critic and worked behind the scenes. His son-in-law, who was really antagonistic toward him and more than a thorn in his side, I'd like to tell you he was just silent, but he was a very gifted writer. And he took out his pen and he wrote letters to the editor that were published in the papers too, and there's just all this nastiness going on back and forth between these two believers who end up settling out of court. There are times when we are called to speak, but there are times where we have been hiding among the baggage. We have finally stepped out, and there would be the flesh within us to lay in to critics. That's the situation. That's the temptation that Saul felt, but he kept silent. He endured criticism with humility. Our Lord Jesus would do the same thing. And might God open our eyes today to you and I, whether it's now or something that's going to come into your future, where someone's criticizing you. There may be some. There may be no validity to it. There may be some validity to it. But sometimes the best response is the silent response, the response of Saul, the response of our Lord before the Sanhedrin. Close today with these words about grace. We started this message talking about how when we open God's word, when we hear a sermon, we need knowledge, we need a variety of things, but I'm suggesting probably the most important thing we need is God's grace in our lives. Whatever good there is in us, Matthew Henry writes, or is done by us at any time, it must be ascribed to the grace of God. If the heart bend at any time the right way, it is because he has touched it. One touch is enough when it is divine. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we need your divine touch. We need your grace more than we need Bible knowledge, more than we need to be able to answer trivia questions about Scripture. We need your grace to change us. Lord, there are probably some of us here today, like Frederick Douglass, where the flesh comes out and we say things to our critics when we need to be silent. Help us, God, if that is our response. Lord, there's others of us here today who've probably been called, that have been called by you to do this or to do that, or you've led us in some direction, but we haven't followed through. I'm praying by your grace that we would be following through with whatever that individual thing that God has called you to. 
And then finally, God, all of us, we have idols. We have things that cause us to freak out. We have things that we lose control over. We're not living in light of your supremacy. We pray that we'd be touched by your grace and that we would be content and that we would trust in you and that our lives would be demonstrations of grace and humility, not anger and frustration and lack of self-control. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.